Hey everyone, Laszlo Montgomery here, back again with part two of this soon-to-be-long-winded series introducing the history of tea. On behalf of everyone here at the China History Podcast, welcome back. Last episode, we looked back on tea's most ancient origins in Chinese history. No one knows for sure who that first Charen was, who lived where the tea trees grew indigenously between the Brahmaputra Valley in the west and Sichuan Province in the east. Who was that tea person who first discovered the delights yielded by these leaves and became its first apostle? Let me quote William Eukers, who put it so nicely, quote, The Chinese learned the use of the tea drink of the aboriginal tribesmen of the hill districts bordering on southwestern China. These tribesmen occasionally prepared a beverage by boiling raw green leaves of wild tea trees in kettles over smoky outdoor fires. This was the earliest crude beginning of what the Chinese and Japanese later developed into a socio-religious rite of exquisite refinement, unquote. Until we know better, Shan Nong is standing in for that person. But at least from the beginnings of recorded history, the Shang Dynasty, we know at least that tea was already around. It was bitter. It wasn't called cha. Its value was primarily as a medicine. If anyone drank it for pleasure, they sure hadn't popularized it yet. That was all to come. It was learned that steaming the leaves first, before pounding them into cakes of tea, not only improved the storage technology, but also made the tea a little less bitter. The old method of drying the leaves involved charring them, which left a bitter aftertaste in one's mouth. It took a long time to figure out even the crudest ways to work the freshly plucked leaves but figure it out they did, and as tea began to lose some of its bitterness, one began to see the possibilities of tea as a beverage. From several previous CHP episodes, we know so much of the Tang Dynasty was rooted in the achievements of the father-son team of Sui Wendi and Sui Yangdi. Tea's transition from medicine to beverage began during the Sui Dynasty of these two emperors. The common way to drink tea back then was still to add stuff to it. Adding spices, fruits, plum juice, or ginger to the tea was one way to cut into the bitterness, or at least distract you from it. By the 7th century, the process of making tea had reached a point where not only did it win acceptance from the local people, it was also a massive hit with all the peoples who encircled China from Tibet, Central Asia, and Mongolia. Now, with a healthy demand being ramped up, tea started to become a very big business for some. And this naturally put demands on quality, packaging, transport, and product differentiation. To facilitate this, a transport system needed to be created. And we all know few emperors from Chinese history did more for transportation than those two Sui Dynasty emperors, Wen Di and Yang Di. Remember CHP 111 on the Wu State? King Fu Chai of Wu built the Han Canal, the Han Goat, which connected the Huai and Yangtze rivers. Quite a feat in its day, 5th century BCE. And when Emperor Yang of Sui, quite a character, expanded Fu Chai's Han Canal into the Grand Canal, stretching from Beijing to Hangzhou, this opened up the floodgates for domestic trade and commerce in China. And because the Grand Canal was an eastern China technological and transportation marvel, the whole center of gravity for the tea trade shifted slowly eastward. 
the tea forests of southwest China started to become less important. Their role became more about satiating the markets of the border regions like Tibet and Central Asia. Since tea for these people was more of a beverage than something to wax eloquent over with one's highbrow friends, their demands on quality didn't do much to spur innovation. It would be in the eastern provinces of Fujian, Zhejiang, and Anhui, where things were brought to a high art. After the Qin dynasty fell, many of these northern aristocrats migrated southward and settled down in all the choicest areas of Jiangsu and Zhejiang. It was only natural that these places would become so prominent and would so wholeheartedly embrace tea. And no offense to northern China, I love it in the spring and fall, but the south of China, south of the Yangtze River, that's where all the gorgeous landscape-painting-worthy places were located. It's no wonder that during this age, landscape painting as we know it today was born. Jiangsu, Zhejiang, parts of Anhui and Fujian, those places were simply too intoxicating to the elites, artists, and scholars of the day. And it turned out there were lots of shaded, hilly places in the east of China with excellent soil drainage and the right temperatures and climate. So although they continued to grow and produce tea in Sichuan, Guizhou, and Yunnan to this very day, later on it will be the teas coming out of the eastern provinces that would shake the world and give pleasures and inspiration to who knows how many tea connoisseurs. For the first 2,000 years, we really had to glean through the historical record to understand basic things about tea. Now in the Tang Dynasty, so many things will happen so quickly, especially after Tang Taizong pacified the western borders and brought the Silk Road to great heights never seen before. In the Tang Dynasty, tea is going to finally begin to go down market. Rather than remain a drink for the haves, it will now be easily accessible to the have-nots. And though tea had always been treated and handled like a commodity, now it starts to become much fancier and refined stuff. And this required all kinds of teaware, tools and utensils designed specifically for tea. Tea became more refined and fancy in the tongue. It had been adopted both by Buddhists and scholars and served as a muse and a medium to further enjoy La Dolce Vita. In Chinese history, Tang poets are particularly revered and remembered for the great heights they brought their craft. Many great poems were dedicated to tea. We'll look at one later. The reputation of tea became well-known in the regions bordering Tang China, Tibet, Qinghai, and Xinjiang. These people couldn't live without it. Not only was it a beverage that was essential to their daily happiness and enjoyment, it was even more essential for the health benefits it conveyed to people who lived in places so inhospitable. Growing enough vegetables to sustain a community was out of the question. The demand beyond China's borders was quite great. To facilitate the transport of tea to the roof of the world and up to the northwest of China into Xinjiang and Mongolia, Routes were created where caravans of men and horses traversed west and north, bringing mostly Chinese tea to the daily lives of the Himalayan people. These routes became known as the Cha Ma Gu Dao, the ancient tea horse road. And during the Tang, tea would henceforth be called Cha. Something this special needed to be rebranded with its own character. 
As I mentioned last episode, the Chinese character for Cha was the same as the character Tu, but with a single horizontal stroke removed. The perfection of this character is obvious to etymologists. The top portion of the character Cha has a grass radical. Then there's a Ren, a person in the middle, and a tree below, three elements, a person in between grass and a tree. The harmony between humans and nature, represented in the character Cha. Along with the Buddhism that spread regionally during the Sui and Tang, came tea and Chinese tea culture. The people of Korea and Japan studied everything that Chinese tea and tea culture had to offer. Then each of those two special places did that thing that each did to make it unique to their own culture. This was the time when tea came to Korea and Japan. In the last episode, tribute teas, or gong cha, were mentioned. These were teas considered special and extraordinary in their uniqueness and flavor. In the finest tasting leaves and buds of the most prized teas, the cream of the harvest, the earliest buds plucked before the Qingming festival in early April, these were reserved solely for the emperor. Everything that was harvested after that was for everyone else. The number of tribute teas in the Tang grew, and some of them are still around today. Let's look at how tea makers in the Tang dynasty made their tea. They picked their tea leaves early in the morning, preferably when the dew was still moist on the leaf. The leaves would be boiled in a pot to prevent oxidation and to preserve the green color, but at the same time get rid of the grassy smell. The boiled leaves would be put in a kind of a mortar, and they'd be ground down to break them down a bit and force the tea sap to be released to the surface. Then the tea was put in any number of molds and was patted down to get it into a certain shape. After it was molded, they would just pop it in the oven to seal in the freshness. This is how they made those tea bricks. And these bricks were very convenient to transport, no matter to the lower reaches of the Yangtze River or over the mountains to Tibet. If the tea was going to Tibet, Qinghai, Xinjiang, or Mongolia, it was known as bian cha, or border tea, tea that was sold to the border regions. The quality standards were, as I just said, much lower than what was demanded inside China. Let's talk more about why tea was so critical to these Tibetan, Qiang, and other minority peoples rimming China. As I said, the mountains of the Himalayas wasn't a good climate to plant gardens, or engage in agriculture. The Tibetan diet had always been reliant mostly on meat, the and goats. This mostly meat diet had always exposed them to any number of health problems related to nutrition. You wouldn't expect that a beverage like tea is filled with so many nutrients. Drinking it like they did with butter, salt, and sometimes other additives was like popping vitamins. Tea has vitamin C, D, K, and E. It has Fluoride, manganese, potassium, chromium, calcium, magnesium, iron, copper, zinc, potassium, and other nutrients. The mineral content has a lot to do with the water you're using, too. And there's more fluoride in your tea than in the water supply piped into your residence. There's also carotene, B1, B2, B6, folic acid. Tea doesn't have everything. It doesn't contain the 100% of the minimum daily requirements. But in the case of the Tibetans and these other border peoples, five to six cups of tea a day gave them about 75% of what was required. It was many times better than nothing. 
I'm sure everyone has seen or heard of these medical studies that claim tea prevents cancer, heart disease, diabetes. There are weight loss teas touted all over the place. The claims are made on TV, in the markets, magazines, and in the health food world, the world of the Baojianpin. Some teas are said to help lower cholesterol. Some aid in digestion. I don't want to get too deep into this aspect of tea, but I'm sure many of you are aware that this market segment exists. I guess the most important aspect of tea that is always pointed to as the most important health benefit concerns flavonoids. These antioxidants are said to be particularly helpful in fighting cancer, heart disease, Alzheimer's, and clogged arteries by attacking what's known as free radicals inside your body that might trigger a cancer problem. Free radicals are also known to cause aging and heart disease as well. Of the six classes of tea, green, yellow, white, black, oolong, and pu'ar, each one has their own particular merits as far as what studies have found. The different teas have different polyphenol counts. The polyphenols are the antioxidants that neutralize free radicals and whose amazing merits are splashed all over these health drink labels and fruit drinks. If you can't keep all the marketing straight, tea, or white and green tea in particular, are praised as antioxidants. There are studies that claim Green tea lowers total cholesterol and raises HDL cholesterol, a.k.a. the good one. Others swear by green tea as a preventative against bladder, breast, ovarian, colorectal, esophageal, lung, pancreatic, prostate, skin, and stomach cancers, and also as an aid in preventing Crohn's disease and diabetes. As I said, the antioxidants in tea are called polyphenols or natural phenols. The polyphenols in tea are classified as catechins. You'll see these words in all kinds of ads and packaging and everything from tea leaves, tea extracts, and other dietary supplements. Green tea contains six primary catechin compounds called EGCG. EGCG is the most studied of the polyphenols. White tea has the highest level of antioxidants and an amino acid discovered in 1949 called tianine. A lot of people take tianine supplements to prevent diseases like Alzheimer's and hypertension. In short, tea is healthy for you, but arguments abound about how to reliably and accurately measure the health benefits. Anyway, back to the history. Once this great market was built in Tibet, transport links had to be established. This was easier said than done, because once you start heading due west from Chengdu towards Tibet, it doesn't take long before you hit the Himalayas. Back in the days of Zhang Qian and the earliest years of the Silk Road and the Han Dynasty, it took a bit of time to figure out the right mountain passes to traverse and where to cross certain rivers and how to safely get from point A to point B. For the ancient tea horse route, the same held true. It took some time before these traders and caravan leaders got it down to a system. It was a treacherous journey across the most rugged terrain in all of China. 5,000 meter mountain passes, valleys, and gorges. Some rivers were impassable and required cables to be run from side to side. And all people, cargo, and animals, too, had to be ziplined across. Part of these caravan routes through the mountains were called the 
Shu Yu Niao Zhi Lu, the road of mice and birds. This meant the paths along the mountainsides were so narrow going through these gorges that there was only room enough for a mouse or a bird to walk safely. This whole border trade industry was promoted by the government. China had tea, and the Tibetans and other border people had horses. The Tang government couldn't get enough horses in their stables. Tang Taizong had really pushed the limits of the empire out as far as they had ever been. In order to patrol an empire this big, you needed a lot of horses. West of China, they had an ample supply and were only too anxious to trade them for tea. The government started building their own tea plantations, especially around Sichuan. And they got in the business, too. As the story goes, it was in the year 641 that tea first came calling on the high-altitude world of the Tibetans. This is the story of Princess Wencheng, Wencheng Gongju. She was Tang Taizong's niece. In 641, her uncle, the emperor, married her off to the Tibetan king, Songstan Gampo, Songzan Ganbu. This was done in the interests of bringing peace and stability between China and Tibet. Princess Wencheng is credited with introducing Buddhism to Tibet, as well as all kinds of other practical wisdom from China that had beneficial applications to the Tibetans. She also brought tea with her from Sichuan, and the Tibetans really took to it in a big way. So much so that Tibet became a whole new market for China's tea producers. And again, I mentioned, because the Tibetans mixed the tea with butter and spices, the demands on tea quality and subtleness of flavor weren't as important. The tea makers in Sichuan and Yunnan just churned these cakes and bricks out. There's an old story, I don't know who knows how much of this is true, that when Princess Wencheng was getting acclimated to the life in Lhasa, she would drink half a cup of the local milk at breakfast and chase that down with some tea to get rid of the flavor. Then she tried mixing the milk with the tea and added some clarified butter and pine nuts, and voila, suyo cha, or the famous Tibetan buttered tea, was invented. And from this beginning, with the union of Wencheng Gongzhu to one of the greatest kings in Tibetan history, Songstan Gampo, not only did peace prevail between China and Tibet, the two civilizations joined together in their common embrace of Buddhism and the incorporation of tea into their daily life. And to facilitate the transport of tea to Tibet and to secure as many horses as possible, the Chamagu Dao was created, the ancient tea horse road. In some ways, this was similar to the Silk Road far to the north. It was a trade route. There were two main ones. One led from Kunming to Tibet, and the other linked Chengdu straight west to Tibet. The Kunming route was called the Southern Route, and the product was known as South Route Tea. It passed through the tea marketplace of Pu'er, where it ended up being molded into bricks and sold to the Tibetans to the west. As I said a couple of times, this tea was known as Bian Cha, border tea. Let me read from English explorer William Moorcroft. He trekked from the mouth of the Ganges to Tibet in 1812. He had a fascinating observation about how the local Tibetans had their tea. Quote, At breakfast, each person drinks about five to ten cups each, containing about one-third of a pint. And when the last half is finished, he mixes with the remainder enough barley meal to bring it to the consistency of paste. 
This is done to soak up and render edible a greasy accumulation of froth which is blown aside when the preceding cups are being drunk. The preparation of breakfast tea for, say, ten persons involved boiling an ounce of brick tea and a like quantity of soda in a quart of water for an hour or so or until the leaves of the tea have been sufficiently steeped. The liquid then is strained and mixed with ten quarts of boiling water in which an ounce and a half of fossil salt has been dissolved. The whole is put into a narrow cylindrical churn along with some butter and is churned until it becomes a smooth, oily brown liquid, somewhat like chocolate. In this form, it is transferred to a teapot for immediate use. At midday meal, those who can afford it, take tea again with wheaten cakes accompanied by some paste of wheat flour, butter, and sugar served hot, unquote. From Chengdu and the towns outside of Chengdu, like Qionglai, Ya'an, Wenchuan, Lushan, tea was packed up and sent out west to Tibet and northwest to Qinghai and Gansu. Once it got as far as Gansu, baby, you were hooked up with Silk Road and your stuff could go anywhere in the known world where a Muslim or Mongol trader would take it. Now this brick tea, although it was the accepted standard in Tang days, by the Song Dynasty, they're going to be turning their nose up at this stuff. In fact, interestingly enough, after the Song, the only ones besides the Tibetans who were sticking with brick tea were the Russians. At the exact same time that all of this is going on with the Tea Horse Road, one of the great countries and cultures of this world was bellying up to the bar sipping away at the delights and pleasures of Chinese culture. For Japan, India was far away, but China was conveniently located just across the East China Sea. That's where the Japanese went to learn the customs of China, see the sites, check out the Buddhist temples, and bring everything of use back to Japan, where it was reverse-engineered, modified to suit local tastes and sensibilities, and then these threads were woven into the ever-emerging... Japanese fabric. The Japanese during the Tang Dynasty came for the Buddhism, but they got the tea also, and a few other things. But those two, Buddhism and tea, those two valuable acquisitions came at the same time. And as I mentioned, in the case of Zen Buddhism, they became one. Let me introduce Saicho. He came to the Tang Dynasty from Japan in 803-804. During his time in China, Saicho soaked up all that he could humanly take in. This is right at the early part of the Heian era during the reign of Emperor Saga, 809 to 823. This was also the exact time Charlemagne reigned and founded the Carolingian Empire. Saicho became a monk at the age of 14. He was outstanding in every way and in his 20s retreated to Mount Hiei to continue his Buddhist studies and devotions. He developed quite a following there, and those even vaguely familiar with Japan will know Mount Hiei is where the Enryakuji is located. Saicho had received a directive from no less a person than the Emperor of Japan, who told him to go travel around China and bring back as many Buddhist texts as possible, and in general, do whatever he could of value, and while he's at it, create friendly relations too. He was specifically tasked to study the Tiantai sect of Buddhism. This is the one that was purely homegrown in China and didn't get transplanted from India. You've all 
probably heard of the famous Lotus Sutra. Well, that's associated with this particular sect. Saicho was asked to study their teachings as much as possible. Saicho did as he was told, and eight months after arriving, he headed back to Tsushima on a vessel that sailed from Ningbo. Saicho brought some tea seeds back with him and planted them in Sakamoto Village in Omi Prefecture on the slopes of Mount Hiei. This original tea garden is said to still exist in Ikegami. It was right after Saicho returned from China that he made tea for Emperor Saga and received imperial support in promoting tea drinking and cultivation. Tea, as it was in its current unrefined brick form, didn't particularly go down too well with the Japanese market or nobility. It didn't catch fire in Japan during this Tang period. But seeds were transported, and trees take time to grow. Later, during the Kamakura period, uh, 1185 to 1392, the timing and the technology of tea-making would be all ready to conquer Japan. We'll talk about Eisai when we get to the Song period. Tea went mass-market during the Tang Dynasty. This penetration into the daily lives of most all Chinese would be even greater during the Song but now, in the 8th and 9th centuries, the word had gotten out and everybody was drinking tea. The government again saw an opportunity and created a whole arm of the administration to deal with a tea tax. After the salt and steel tax, tea brought in the greatest amount of revenue for the Tang treasury. The Dezong emperor tried taxing tea first, unsuccessfully in 780, when Lu Yu published the Cha Jing and tea sales started to get real hot. This initial tea tax was repealed for a while due to the politics of the time not being quite right. But as soon as the time was more politically feasible, the emperor put it in place again in 793. Tea cultivation made a lot of progress during the Tang Dynasty. They figured out during the Tang that tea trees and plants love shade. This tipped farmers off to plant the tea bushes in the shadiest places along the northern slopes of the hills and mountains. As more and more knowledge about tea cultivation accumulated and with domestic and overseas demand growing like it was, it put even further incentive on farmers to leave Sichuan and begin heading east along the Yangtze River Valley to plant new tea gardens there. A lot of the most legendary tea gardens out east began this way. The manufacturing and packaging process for brick tea had been further advanced during the Tang. They came up with new ways to mold these tea bricks and make them easier to transport and stay fresh along the way. When these human mules of the Tang era were hauling this brick tea on their sturdy backs through the dangerous mountain passes of the Himalayas, tea still had six centuries to go yet before European people see it for the first time. The tea culture early on was developed around the imperial court, with the emperor, of course, at the center of it all. And after new ways to drink it in Chang'an, Luoyang, Kaifeng, or Beijing were thought up, this new way of preparing the tea or serving the tea or some new aspect of tea culture instantly became fashionable. So you can say during the Tang, tea really went up and down market. Both the masses and the nobles, for the first time in history, were mutually enjoying tea. But tea as an art, as fashion, in literature, as a philosophy, all of this finally came together in the tongue. Tea had evolved into a powerful muse that inspired 
untold numbers of masterpieces in art and literature that have survived throughout the ages. Also around this time, the early 800s, there lived a man of letters named Lu Tong. The Tang was still on a roll at this time. They still had several decades to go yet before An Lu Shan goes and wrecks the party. I'm going to talk about Lu Tong and Lu Yu. Lu Yu is the better known of the two because of the Cha Jing, but Lu Tong is a very close second place with his great body of work in Tang poetry in general and for his famous tea poems, Qi Wan Shi, or Seven Bowls of Tea in particular. Lu Tong's poem is the definitive Tang Dynasty tea poem. Not only was it popular in China, but in Japan as well. And there are a lot of tea poems that came out of that golden era. Lu Tong was famous for many things. His poems, his love of, and expertise in tea. He was also known for his wisdom as well as his eccentricities, mostly manifested in his reclusive lifestyle. Altogether, this made Lu Tong quite an endearing Tang Dynasty personage. He lived this hermit-like existence out on this beautiful mountain in Henan, not far from Shaolin Temple. He came from money, so he never had to worry where his next bowl of kanji was coming from. It was an idyllic, scholarly life. He drank tea all day long, and important people often came to seek his counsel. In the next episode, I'm going to discuss the Cha Jing, the classic of tea by Lu Yu. Lu Tong was in his early 20s when that book came out. Lu Tong was totally uncorrupted by money and politics. Despite all the attempts by government officials to recruit him, he always said, that life wasn't for me. He was an ardent Taoist and followed the Tao in all ways. He was incorruptible, but Lu Tong could be tempted with the right tea. He was credited with saying, quote, I care not a bit for immortal life, but only for the taste of tea, unquote. I told you the tribute tea system really took off during the Tang emperors. And like I said last episode, how much could the emperor drink? So all these fantastic teas, finest in all the land, a lot of product trickled down to those who hung around the imperial palace. Lu Tong knew one such guy. And one day this person, someone who had access to the emperor himself, came calling on Lu Tong and brought him a very special gift that had been handed to him before by the emperor himself. So he was sort of re-gifting this tea that had come direct from the emperor's own stash. And this official had now come down to the Lake Tai area and was now giving this tea to Lu Tong. Later on in the series, we'll look at many of these tribute teas. There's so many of them. But this one in particular, Yang Xian Zi Sun Cha, this one was not easy to get your hands on, at least not the quality that went to the imperial palace in Chang'an. This Zisun, or purple bamboo tea, was, I read, the first true tribute tea. The operation to produce this tea began in 770, the Tang Daizong Emperor's time. Yangxian tea came from Mount Guju near the Lake Tai area the famous lake in China surrounded by Suzhou, Huzhou, Changxing, Yixing, and Wuxi. Yangxian was the former name of what we know today as the city of Yixing. We'll talk about their teaware later on in the series. This Yangxian tea was one of the earliest teas of the spring season to be picked. There was an old saying, quote, The hundred plants dare not bloom until the emperor 
had the first taste of Yang Xian tea. Unquote. The emperor sent his own people down to Jiangsu to personally oversee the harvesting, the packaging, and to supervise the entire operation and ensure the integrity of the product that ultimately got transported up to Chang'an. The shipment had to arrive and be ready to drink before the Qingming holiday in early April. This wasn't just some ordinary tribute tea. When Lu Tong copped a gander at this generous gift of Yang Xian Zi Sun Cha, he really was beholding the Holy Grail for any Cha Ren like himself. And not just the tea, the water too that flowed from nearby Jinsha Spring, that too had to accompany the tea leaves. In order to extract the optimum tea drinking experience, the best and purest flavor, the finest aroma, the Yang Xian Zi Sun Cha had to be drunk with Jinsha spring water. I'm not kidding you. They filled containers with water from the Jinsha spring and transported it up to Chang'an, 62.4 pounds per cubic foot. But if you lived in the area of Huzhou or Yixing, you could have it every day. You can buy this tea today. A lot of tea shops, both brick and mortar and online, sell it. I don't know about the uh, Jinsha water, though. The way you can buy it today doesn't look at all like it did during the Tang. As we'll see over the next episodes, tea never stopped evolving. In Lu Tong's time in the Tang, this tea came in small, convenient cakes. It wasn't found in its present loose-leaf form until the Ming Dynasty. So, Lu Tong wrote this poem. It was written in the form of a letter of appreciation to his friend up at the palace, who had been so kind as to give him a gift fit for an emperor. I'm sure Lu Tong appreciated it a lot more than His Majesty did. So he wrote this poem, and I'll just read the most famous part, where he speaks about the seven bowls of tea he pours for himself after he has shut himself in and was all alone in his tea version of his smoking spot. Then he enjoyed this tea. I'll read both the English translation and what Lu Tong actually wrote. The first bowl moistens my lips and throat. Yiwan Run. The second bowl breaks my loneliness. Erwan Pogumun. The third bowl searches my barren entrails, but to find therein some five thousand scrolls. Sanwan Soku Chang Wei Yowen Zi Wu Qianjun. The fourth bowl raises a slight perspiration, and all life's inequities pass out through my pores. Siwan Fa Qing Han. Ping Sheng Bu Ping Shi Jin Xiang Mao Kong San. The fifth bowl purifies my flesh and bones. Wu Wan Ji Gu Ching. The sixth bowl calls me to the immortals. Liu Wan Tong Xian Ling. The seventh bowl could not be drunk. Only the breath of the cool wind raises in my sleeves. Qi Wan Chi Bu De Ye. Where is Penglai Island? Yu Chuanzi wishes to ride on this sweet breeze and go back. Penglai Shan Zai He Chu. Yu Chuanzi Chengzi Qingfeng Yu Gui Chu. Lutong, everyone. Yeah, tea had come a long way since the Bronze Age, but it still had plenty more refinement and improvement to go yet. By Lutong's time in the Tang Dynasty, Tea took on a whole new importance. Tea had reached the point in scale and economics where most everyone could afford it. 
not everyone got to enjoy the same quality or drink from the same teaware, but that's the same wherever you go. Quality aside, tea had become something that everyone throughout society began to demand. People will say the same or similar things about their coffee. Coffee and tea both offer great pleasures, inspiration, and for many, an extra stage of rocket fuel to power them through the day or through a meeting. Everyone had access to tea. It was more dear to some than to others, but it was now a part of daily life in China, and as I mentioned at the outset, the border people incorporated tea into their daily life too. And if you had tea, no matter how poor you were, you had to have some sort of tea set to make it, pour it, and drink it. Well, you just need a charcoal stove, some sort of pot, and two cups. But this would hardly suffice if you were someone who drank tea as more than just a thirst quencher. You needed some tea-specific utensils to do it all upright. And that's how the whole teaware industry was created in China. And out of this necessity, of course, came great innovations that inspired other porcelain treasures. During the Tang Dynasty, there was a type of porcelain ware known as yueware, yueqi. Technically, it was a stoneware. It came from Yuezhou, hence its name. Yuezhou would be near present-day Shaoxing, just a little east of Hangzhou. The earliest days of Yueware go back to the later Han. The quality and design of the ceramics coming out of those kilns reached their height during the Tang. Prior to the Tang, Yueware had quite a following regionally, but in the Tang, it became a national brand. Yueware was the most common teaware in China back then. It's recognizable by its yellowish or bluish green color. There was even a color of yueware reserved for the emperor called mi se, which translates to a secret color. The recipe for this glaze was a state secret. Nothing was more precious than jade back then, so this yueware and its celadon glaze with its jade look to it was most prized. For drinking tea, yueware was the old established chinaware of the masses who could afford to use chinaware. Especially by the 9th century, this was already not a small number. But a new contender emerged during the Tang that challenged yueware for prestige in the marketplace and in the minds of wine and tea connoisseurs. This was called xingware. The characteristic thing about xingware was its whiteness. All white, very delicate looking. The tea looks great in the cup, and you can get a better appreciation of the tea's color in xingware. In choosing the color of the teaware, it was always an important consideration that the cup provided a pleasing complement to the color of the tea you were drinking. There are a lot of differences in a tea's color from brew to brew and leaf to leaf, and xingware really brought it out. This kind of porcelain was also called whiteware. Xingware was an innovation of the north around Hebei, in the heartland where Chinese civilization began. Yueware came from the south, south of the Yangtze. When Western people figure out what tea is in the 17th century, it's also going to spawn a whole global industry of porcelain ware. I know this sounds incredible to believe, but Europeans didn't figure out how to make porcelain until the 18th century. Johann Friedrich Birtiger. His shop was in Meissen, not far from Dresden. Bertiger is quite an interesting chap and was featured in the excellent History of Alchemy podcast. Travis Dow does that one with Pete Coleman. Uh, that's the sister show to the Bohemican podcast. Travis Dow and Pete Coleman. If you like history podcasts, I've uh, recommended them before. Bertiger figured out how to do it. 
Up until his time, when he figured it out in 1705, porcelain was right up there with silver and gold as far as precious objects went. It was called white gold. So in the time of Lu Yu and Lu Tong, the porcelain secret was still safe for another nine centuries. And trust me, when Bertiger discovered how to make porcelain, he too kept it under wraps, passionately so. Lu Yu is at stage left right now, looking at his watch. As far as T is concerned, he's, he's really the big star of the Tang Dynasty, and we've talked about everything except him. So next episode, we're going to look at his life, his great work, the Cha Jing, the classic of tea, and the legacy he would have all the way into our present day. I haven't walked into a single tea shop or tea person's home or office who didn't have at least a small Lu Yu figurine on the shelf. So that's for part three. Today at the Royal China History Podcast, we looked at all kinds of different aspects about tea. The opening of the Grand Canal and other transport links caused a massive network of trade to develop. With this, tea and tea culture was able to make its way from the southwest and to the east and to the north much more easily. The awareness of tea went in all directions. We saw Princess Wencheng and how this marriage alliance her uncle, the Taizong Emperor, made with the King of Tibet brought tea, Buddhism, and Chinese culture to that part of Asia. And as a direct result of this interaction, the Chama Gu Dao, the ancient tea horse route, came into being. And countless tons of brick tea was carried through these dangerous mountain passes by mules and human mules. This was a rough trade, and they probably didn't have a union back then. This tea brought to Tibet and other places gave a nice boost to the nutritional well-being of the Zhang, Qiang, and other peoples of the Himalayas. And we close with Lu Tong, one of the great characters from the Tang Dynasty, and his poem, Qi Wan Shi, Seven Bowls of Tea. Even though the Tang was a brick tea world, they still made some good stuff. In this episode, imperial tribute teas were also mentioned, and from the introduction of Lu Tong, you could see how special and refined these teas were, and still are. Go to any online tea vendor selling China loose leaf tea. These same tribute teas are still around, and you could buy them. And on a cup-per-cup basis, very affordable to all. So you can see from Lu Tong's poem what tea started to mean to some people for the first time. Not just a medicine anymore. In the Tang, it became what we know today. Something to savor. Something to bring calm, reflection, focus, and inspiration. A beverage that creates a bond between humans and nature. I hope by the time the curtain falls on the last episode that almost everything you need to know about tea has been mentioned. We'll look at Lu Yu next time, and then we'll take the history of tea clear through to the Song, Yuan, Ming, and finish off in the Qing. Throughout the Tang, the periods of disunity, the Yuan, and into the Ming, all those areas from Tibet, Qinghai, Xinjiang, Central Asia, and into Mongolia, people immediately took to tea. The dating period was very quick and went straight to marriage. Wherever tea was beheld and tasted, it was always in these lands bordering China. Love at first sight. Well, into the Ming and Qing dynasties, the same thing is going to happen. Only this time, it's not just the border regions surrounding China. It's the whole rest of the world. And the global tea mania will be no less great than it was in Lhasa, going back to Princess Wencheng's time. And part of this great story is that by the 17th and 18th centuries, 
humankind had developed much better modes of transport and logistics than the Chamaku Dao. So, I leave you with that to mull over in anticipation of episodes yet to come. This is Laszlo Montgomery signing off once again from pretty much the farthest edge possible of L.A. County. I invite you to consider joining me next time for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.